If you appreciated listening to this podcast and are considering to donate some money to a nonprofit organization this year, I'd like you to consider donating to the Sangre de Cristo Seminary through the Spirit Campaign this year, starting November 15th through December 31st. Every donation you give up to $1,000 will be matched by generous contributors through the Wet Mountain Valley Community Foundation. If you are interested, the link is in the show notes. Any contribution that you give will be greatly appreciated. We need some sponsors. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So firewood. Yeah. Firewood. We could. Uh, we should have a firewood sponsor. Yeah. No. Beth Hangard does um, advertise for pigs. Yeah. And uh, farm animals. Steel chainsaws. Yeah. Come on down. Come on down there. Sangre Cristo Pig Emporium. We got big pigs. We got little pigs. Going down or down. I got so many pigs, they're on sale. <laughs> Fog machines going. Come to the Sangre Cristo Lounge. I've got a bad seat on the mic. Or, or we could just close the vent while the fire's going. We could <laughs> get some wild atmosphere going. Is that Ferris is cocksure. Alright, you guys ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Well, welcome to Practically Theologians Podcast. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do that again. Welcome to Theologically Wow. <laughs> There's a new name, Theologically Wow. <laughs> Theologically Wow. I'll see if that name's taken. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, welcome to Practically Theologians Podcast. Uh, today we got with us uh, your host, me, Nikki, and to my right, uh, who do we have? Josh. To my left? Jeremy. Andrew. Ferris. Tom. We are at the Sangre de Cristo, I, I say, I say lounge, it's lodge, but I think it's it's got a... It's got a nice, uh, nice tone to nice it. Nice smoky haze. It's yeah. made out of wood, and there's animals nice on the walls, so it's down, a lot of like feel. <laughs> Some washed-up singers from yeah. the '80s. Yeah, and today we're going to be talking and continuing our, our topic on uh, biblical preaching, and uh, just kind of where we were in the last episode, where we uh, introduced this topic. We discussed what exegetical mm-hmm. biblical preaching was, why it's so important that we preach exegetically. What criteria we use to know if a message is exegetical, and finally, how to be, uh, not become so overcritical of your local pastor who isn't perfect. Uh, so, would someone like to give us uh, just a brief, uh, just definition of what exegetical preaching is? Well, it's when you read the Bible and you preach from it. You get out of the Bible what it says. Right? You hmm. uh, could get a better. <laughs> A little bit better definition. And I can't well, you don't put into the Bible what it doesn't say. <laughs> Jeremy actually gave a, a really good definition last time. I'm on the spot. Oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> well, I can say that there's um, the difference. The, the two sides of the um, spectrum are exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis comes from the Greek word meaning to, to go out or to uh, pull out. And what you're doing is you are studying the scriptures in a way that you were able to pull meaning out from the text. Whereas eisegesis means to, uh, from the word uh, ice or in to, into means you're taking meaning and putting it into the text. For example, you're starting off with an idea and finding and trying to make the text fit that idea mm. rather than making your teaching and belief fit what the text says. 
Yeah, I think you kind of nailed it with that, that last sentence that you said, where you're approaching the text with what it says. You're not coming with... Every half hour. You're not coming with the idea. You're letting coming the, to you live. <laughs> you're letting the text determine uh, what the idea that you're going to be preaching on is. Um, so in the podcast notes, we're going to have all of the ten stages uh, that, that uh, Haddon Robinson goes through in his book. So if you care to, to know all ten of them, uh, you can feel free to go check that out in the notes. But we're only going to be covering the first few today. So let's just start out with uh, just stage one. Uh, the first stage is choosing the passage to be preached. So there's a lot to this. It might seem pretty simple, but um, some things that go into it is, is understanding if you're going to be preaching exegetically or preaching topically. If uh, you got to find the homiletical unit, uh, the applicability to the congregation. That's an interesting word. And then your ability to handle the text itself. So let's kind of to break that down. So how do we choose if we're going to cho- uh, preach a, a text uh, exegetically or if we want to preach a topic such as maybe, uh, I don't know, marriage in our church? Um, I think one thing that we do need to keep in mind, so topical sermons can get a bad rap, right? But it is possible to teach a topical sermon exegetically if the if we're saying that exegesis is pulling out the main idea of the text that we're preaching. Um, it, it's possible to preach uh, a sermon on marriage, right, and go to passages that speak about marriage and exegete those passages properly and then teach a topical sermon uh, on marriage or something else. So I, th- I think that we have to be careful not to just write off topical mm-hmm. sermons uh, and say that they're all bad. The problem is there's a, that they're, it's regularly abused, mm-hmm. right, to uh, topical sermons are used as a way to to avoid exegeting the <clears throat> passage uh, and just preach uh what whatever makes sense to you or how you can read the topic into the passage. So the difference would be saying, what does the Bible teach about marriage versus I want to teach this about marriage mm-hmm. and figure out yeah. how the Bible says that. Right. So if I'm understanding right with the topical message, are you saying that you might not need a, a main text that you're going to be kind of uh, camping through kind of throughout the majority of your message? What's that? So I started to understand what, so do we, when we're preaching topically, are we maybe not going to have a main text that we're kind of uh, preaching through? Are you saying that it, we're, we should be, um, or not that we should be, but that we we might be looking at a bunch of different texts throughout the the scriptures, kind of possibly the idea, possibly. But I, but I could, uh, I mean, I could preach a topical sermon on marriage and know that I'm going to preach from Ephesians five. Okay, right, and that's a, I'm looking. I could approach that from a topical perspective, saying if I'm going to preach on marriage this Sunday. Uh, then what are some passages I can go to that I could properly exegete that would uh, illuminate us to to God's, uh, how God has instructed us in the topic of marriage, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, what I have to be open to in that is as I exegete that passage, I have to make sure that it actually does speak of the topic that I'm trying to talk about, right? So um, Dr. Andrew Zeller brought up an example um, of a passage that he was working through, and he went into the passage thinking, I'm going to speak on this topic. And as he exegeted the passage, he realized that topic's mm-hmm. not the main point of this passage, yeah. right? Um, so you have, so if you're prop, if you're going to up, hold up exegesis as, uh, highly as what we're, what we're talking about here, you have to allow that to shape, is this actually the topic of this passage? And if it is, then sure, you, you know, you can preach a topical yeah. message on Ephesians 5 having to do with marriage, right? Yeah. Well, one thing I'd like to say, you know, 
like a typical uh, uh, topic for a topical sermon um, would be marriage. I, Andrew had referred to Ephesians 5. And I think one thing we need to be careful of if we are going to preach topically is that we are understanding what the purpose of the topic is uh, in the scriptures. Uh, just turning to Ephesians 5 real quick. Um, it says in 25, I'll just start there. Um, well, let me Actually, let me start at verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And uh, so really, if we are going to preach topically, we need to be careful that we're not just um, standing in front of the pulpit and telling people how to have a nice marriage, Mm -hmm. how to have a happy marriage. But we need to see what the biblical purpose of marriage is. And ultimately, that is to bring glory to Christ uh, by the husband and the wife, each displaying Christ's likeness and uh, the wife displaying how the church should act. Yeah. In, in their marriage. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I, I just see a correlation between an increase in topical preaching and an increase on a self-help approach to Christianity. And sometimes, um, like Andrew pointed out a minute ago, it's not wrong to teach topically so long as you still teach faithfully. Um, and a faithful message is not centered on man. It's centered on God. Mm-hmm. Now, God does help us in our needs and struggles However, the ultimate end is for the glory of his name. And sometimes that gets lost when we treat the Bible as sort of a self-help manual. Okay, here's, here's my problem today. So where, let me just flip around and find something that fixes me. Yeah. Um, that there's a time to look for passages that speak to our present situation, to be sure. Uh, but in general, I think the main diet of the church should be an exegetical teaching, working book by book and trying to understand the whole of what God wants to do in our lives. Yeah. So like understanding the whole totality of scripture, because when you preach, maybe just topically, you can get in the rut of talking about the same things over mm-hmm. and over again and not looking at the hard texts that are kind of uncomfortable to maybe preach on sometimes, but that nevertheless need to be. Absolutely. And another thing that is significant and important about exegetical teaching through a book is that it helps your students, your congregation, learn how to read Scripture hmm. rather than using it as a um, a guide to, like, oh, I want to find out something about marriage. Let me turn to a passage about marriage. It helps them to be able to read a book as a whole, understanding hmm. as a whole. And as you said, uh, Nikki, uh, understand Scripture as a whole unit rather than individual pieces. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's really helpful to, to know when when and when maybe not to uh, preach topically and when to go exe- exegetically. Oh, one one thing I, maybe that'd be helpful to clarify too, just so that so that we can hold to the um, idea you you introduced with that we're not overly critical of a local pastor. Um, my understanding is that exegetical preaching is not necessarily the, the definition of exegetical preaching is not working systematically through a book. That's typically how it's done, but that's not the definition. The definition is what we, what we had talked about is pulling out the main idea of a passage, right? Mm-hmm. And then letting that main idea or that proposition be the main idea of your message, right? So I just want to make sure because it is possible to preach exegetically, but not always systematically through a book. Um, so I don't want somebody to go into a church Right, go to their local church and then think, well, my pastor just preached a topical sermon. It must not have been exegetical. It very, it very easily could have been. 
Um, but I agree with what you guys are saying that the, the normal diet of the church should be probably a combination of the two. Um, let's do a study on marriage or a study on what the church is, how the church functions. Those can be topical study or topical sermon mess, uh, series, right? Um, but then also let's, let's work in there. Let's work through books of the Bible as well, right? Um, but all of that can be under the umbrella of exegetical preaching. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, you know, example I had, uh, there was a, pastor who, uh, there was a book that was kind of taking, it was just becoming really popular and he was concerned that it was, uh, not good for the, you know, he, he essentially wanted to address the ideas being talked about in the book. The book was, uh, the shack. And so he read the book and just one Sunday he took and looked at several different doctrines that he felt were under attack by that book. And then he, he utilized that as a framework to talk about how we find those doctrines in the scripture. Um, hmm. But he said that's just not um, what he thinks is the should be the typical diet of the church. But he thought yeah. that that was important. That's interesting. So, so moving on to staying in the choosing the passage to be preached, uh, we mentioned uh, choosing a homiletical unit and the applicability to the congregation. Tom, for for those who might not be familiar with that term, what is a, a homiletical unit? Well, uh, you, there's probably a lot of ways you could go about defining that, but one that um, comes to mind for me would just to be to try to capture um, a, a complete thought or a complete idea that's being presented in Scripture. Uh, for instance, if if we were to take even this podcast thus far and someone were to break it up into sound bites, and they were to take just one or two of those sound bites without knowing the whole or without examining the whole, they could easily come up with a very different idea about what we're discussing today. And so it's important to try to understand, and and none of us are perfect at this, but to try to see the flow of thought in a book of the Bible and to make sure that the the unit you're selecting presents a complete thought. Um, And then obviously from there, as we'll discuss in a minute, you want to present that thought in its context of the wider uh, range of the book. Yeah. So maybe choosing a, a homiletical unit uh, could, could depend on a lot of factors. Maybe uh, your time, uh, like, like you were saying, the, the, uh, the congregation you're going to be preaching to. I think so. Uh, also, this goes back to the, what we were talking about as far as um, exegetical preaching um, and topical the, an understanding, if you're going to pick a homiletical unit, you need to have an understanding of the, like all the passages that are around it, right? So it'd be, it'd be silly to go in and just, uh, select a text and be like, well, I think, I think I see a thought here. Uh, so even when preaching a topical sermon that you want to be exegetical, <coughs> while you may not walk the congregation through the entire book, the pastor better have walked through the, the entire book a lot of times, right? And that's how you start to find the homiletical units, and that's how you start to track the flow of thought. Yeah. And that's how you know, even when you deliver a topical sermon, uh, I this is this is how this unit, this homiletical unit, relates to the book as a whole, right? That all has to be part of that topical sermon. So I think uh, having an understanding of the entire book uh, would be preferable, mm-hmm. and, but at least the chapters around it, right? So if you're if you're digging into a big book like Isaiah. Uh, you better have a, a well-rounded understanding of what is the book of Isaiah about, and specifically these chapters here. Mm. Um, and that will help you narrow down the, the homiletical unit to something that, that you can communicate. Yeah, so it seems like it, it might be a good idea to consider your ability to, to handle the text like we were talking about is 
is uh, maybe preaching through uh, ch- chapter maybe uh, 32 of Ezekiel, something that you should do when you haven't been studying that book, when you haven't been laboring over uh, the context, the, the chapters before and after, what exactly uh, Ezekiel was getting at when he was writing that. Um, it's definitely something we should take into consideration when, when choosing a text that we should uh, be preaching on. Uh, stage two, moving on now, uh, is to study your passage and gather your notes. So some things that go into that are uh, language, uh, at least to the best of your ability, um, syntax, uh, genre, context, and also getting the subject in the complement. So um, concerning the language, um, is, is it really that helpful to to know the original language of, of the Old and New Testament Um so, Tom, what do you think? I, I would say um, the English translations that we have, by and large, are faithful translations. Uh, and, a, and a Christian um, should feel confident to study their English translation and feel that they're, they're understanding God's Word. Um, I do think that it's a great privilege. And um, there is a, even a measure of responsibility that I would, I would encourage anyone serving in a teaching role on a regular basis to be pursuing advancement in their understanding of the original languages because there there is depth and nuance and um, particularness in the original language that sometimes you can't fully grasp uh, as it's brought into the English or into any other language, um, not just here in the United States, but even around the world. And in fact, this week, um, Andrew and I were discussing the importance of language. And um, I wonder if you would like to share a couple of the comments you were you were sharing earlier this week. Oh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> let me see if I can remember the thoughts that I was sharing earlier this week. Profoundly. There's been a lot of Hebrew between now and, or between, yeah, between then and now. Um, I think, I'm not sure if this is where you were going, but I think one of the things that, uh, that we had discussed that, that day was the, the importance of the original language in, in the sense that it gives you a fuller and a deeper understanding of the text, but not having, uh, training in the original languages doesn't diminish your ability to be able to understand the gospel and the truths that the, that the text presents. There may be some fine tuning. There may be some things that uh, I think what, what Dr. Dwight Zeller usually says is uh, it's like going from black and white to full color or even high def, right? So all of a sudden the strip, you can see the scriptures in a light that you weren't able to see before. Uh, but something else that we had talked about too was if you're going to bite off the original languages um, to realize that, there's no such thing as a nibble, and then it's okay, right? So, so sometimes the danger is to think, well, I understand a little bit of Greek. I have the Strong's Dictionary, and I have the Amplified Bible, and it gives me some Greek definitions, and therefore I should be able to uh, start having a fuller understanding of Scripture. If you're going to bite off the original language, there is a learning curve, or like what our uh, Professor Ben used to say, there's a, um, there's a hill you have to climb, and you need to get somewhere um, up on that hill before you can actually put that to use. So mm-hmm. it is something I would encourage everybody in, but just be aware that a little bit of Greek can actually do more harm um, than maybe just having several English translations and allowing that to be what informs your uh, understanding of the passage. And, and to that point, you know, just a really brief illustration. We've all seen a movie where someone's in a foreign land and they know a little bit of the language. And suddenly they start interacting and, you know, in the subtitles on the screen, they're saying all kinds of obscure and ridiculous things, but they're saying them very confidently. And that's a great picture of what many of us have done, unfortunately, and sometimes uh, do when we don't have a great understanding of the language, but we're trying to 
almost pretend as though we do. We're, we're taking a commanding position in something we don't really understand. And that can actually do more harm than help. And so it's one of those things where you definitely want to have uh, humility in your approach, not to be afraid of it, but to just to be humble and really make sure that you have a, a real thorough understanding before you just dive, dive in. Yeah, and so I know three of us here at the table are in their second year of Greek, and all six of us are in our first year of Hebrew. Is there anything else anyone would like to add, just <clears throat> something that you've taken away from studying the languages of Scripture that you're just, you know, you, maybe you haven't seen before uh, in, in English? Yeah, so, so one that we've talked about uh, quite a bit here is the Great Commission, right? And that's, that's a pretty easy one to go to because people have are familiar with it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but when, it, when, when we read the passage that says, Go and make disciples, teaching them everything that I've taught you, baptizing them right in my name. Uh, that entire passage, when we look at that, we just did this in class the other day, and we write down how many commands that we see. Uh, we think that there's a lot in the English translation, but the reality is there's one command, uh, and it's surrounded by uh, participles, which is what we learn, you know, we'll learn in Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and those participles support the command, and the command is to make disciples, hmm. right? And then the participles are to go and teach them and baptize them. So basically, those are the way that you make disciples, right? So um, I think that that's one where even if you don't have an understanding of the original language, you still get the idea that you're supposed to go out and make disciples and be and be sharing what Jesus has taught. Uh, but that starts to help you see the put those in the right order, I guess, yeah. uh, and emphasize the right things. Yeah, it gives you a little bit more uh, of clarity yeah. uh, on the issue. Uh, one thing I'd like to add to that, I think it's really good to know the, the original language, but um, even... Even with that, I think simply a thorough knowledge of the Bible in English can help guard against maybe overemphasizing the word go Hmm. there. Uh, For example, there was the man who Jesus, he was a demoniac who Jesus healed, and he wanted very badly to go with Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus told him to stay right where he was and to witness to the people around him. And, um, you know, so often that that is the case for most people that we're not necessarily called to cross the seas, but many people are called to stay. And I think just a thorough knowledge of the English Bible can help guard against that. Yeah. Yeah. So with the, the other things we want to cover uh, in this stage, uh, particularly syntax, genre and context, let's talk about that a little bit, but, but again, uh, we need definition to, to some of these words that people might not be familiar with syntax. What is that? Well, the Pharisees had a syntax. No, the Roman Church had a <laughs> syntax, right? Indulgences. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Wow. That's what we're talking about. And speaking of crossing seas, I've always crossed my T's, but sorry. Okay, two jokes. I'm done. Okay. Syntax. syntax is the relation of words in sentences, sentences in paragraphs, paragraphs in whole units, and how those relate to each other and what meanings we pull from that. So like, like, therefore, therefore would be a uh, kind of a conclusion based off of what was previously said. Smart in the languages you are. <laughs> <laughs> so syntax. So that you're saying that that's something that we should be doing before we're preparing a passage, and and to kind of that kind of encompasses a little bit of the, of the context that we want to talk about, just looking at the overall. Emphasis of maybe an entire book and then kind of narrowing it down to maybe chapter by chapter and what's up? Yeah, context. 
Like if you were hearing the word syntax and we were talking about theology, you could take that out of context and say, these guys are not reformed. They, they're with the Roman Catholic Church, aren't they? Anyway, we are. The context is very important. And that, it, it, as funny as that is, you see how these things relate to each other. Um, I wish I had a better example, but if I were just to say the word stop, what does that mean? Stop what? And how urgent is it? How, how significant? How important? Or is it just a little joke between friends? You can't tell unless you understand the context in which that word is spoken. Mm. And that's kind of what we're getting at. You're looking at the relationship of words to one another in sentences, as Jeremy said, in paragraphs and so on, to the greater expanse of the book and even on to the whole of Scripture. Um, but also, the genre is something else that you want to consider. What what kind of communication is this? Is this a sermon, like from the beginning of Acts? Or is this a narrative that's telling me the history of events that have taken place in the lives of God's people? Because the environment into which words are spoken says a lot to how we're to interpret those words. Um, and if we don't understand those things, we might, even well-intendingly, we might misinterpret those words. So, Tom, you mentioned genre, but, uh, you know, that's, I'm trying to understand that it could be a little vague to the listener. What do you, what exactly do you mean by, by genre? So maybe someone wants to tackle that. A genre is a particular form of communication in which, uh, well, yes, yeah, it's a particular form of communication in which it has its own specific characteristics, themes, uh, tools, and methods of communicating a truth. For example, you have a, po- you have poetry. Poetry uses very visual, very vivid, very um, descriptive language that oftentimes is not, that is meant to be taken symbolically or non-literally to represent truths. Literal truths. Yes, to represent actual literal truth versus a epistle, which is a instructions in a sense, and it is very literal. It is non-poetic. It is non-metaphorical. It's basically straight uh, teaching. I don't know if that's helpful. So we have poetry, we have epistles. Are there other genres? You got uh, prophecy. There's apocalyptic literature, there's discourse, there's narrative, there's historical literature. But a lot of times people just bring the, all those things down, and there's probably even some others we could mention, um, genealogies and so forth. A lot of times people bring those down, though, to uh, narrative and what's the second one, Ferris? Discourse. Discourse. We've been learning about that this week. Thanks for quizzing me, keeping me sharp. <laughs> just making sure you're ready. Yes. Okay. That's what we do here at Seminary. We just ask each other random questions all throughout the day, theologically. So last part of this of this stage, uh, and actually a really important part, is getting the subject and the complement uh, of the passage. How, how do we define those two things? What is the uh, subject and the complement? Well, my good friend Andrew Gerber once said um, that the subject <laughs> is like the main question being asked. And then the complement would be like the answer to that question. So, um, Andrew Gerber, do you have a good example for, for <laughs> so a subject and a complement? The subject would be what is the author talking about? And you could get there by asking six questions. Yeah, so, but, I mean, the whole point is to come to the main idea of the text. That's what we're talking about, right? To come to the main idea of the text. So, breaking that main idea into a subject and a complement is simply, it's a way to come to an understanding of the main idea of the text. So, Mm -hmm. if you ask a question, which would be the complement, and so the illustration that we were talking about, the question could be, is is this text talking about, 
And then your question could be, who goes to heaven? Right. That could be the question that is that the question that kind of sums up what the author is talking about. And then your yeah. compliment would be, how would I answer that based on this text? So it could be those who have faith in Christ. Your, so your subject compliment are your question answer, but then you combine that to come up with your main idea, which would be those who have faith in Christ go to heaven. And then you need to run that through the passage and see, is this truly the main idea of the passage? So it's just one way to, to break into a subject and a compliment is just one way to try to come to the main idea of the passage. And, and I, I think it's important though to, to seriously consider that because if you get the main point, not the only point, but the main point of a passage, you will better understand how the pieces fit together toward that main end. Does that make sense? One example passage that is almost like a softball toss here for us to help see this is Psalm 15, verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Now, he goes on to list a number of things. If we don't understand that the subject is who is worthy, who is righteous enough, who is capable of actually having communion with God, we could define the passage by some of its parts instead of understanding that this is the context. This is the main thing that's being asked. And this gives definition to everything that follows. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's a great. helpful one yeah. to look at. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so we're kind of getting into stage three, and, and it's good. It's, it's uh, connecting well. So the third stage is as you study the passage, relate the parts to one another to determine the exegetical idea and its development. So we're talking about having kind of like a main idea. But what's maybe something we should do if we're if we're seeing that there's maybe multiple big ideas that can kind of be uh, the the majority of our <clears throat> of our preaching? Is it maybe okay if we have two big ideas, maybe two propositions, or should we really just stick to, to narrowing it down to one? You know, I think Andrew has some great thoughts for this one. Yeah, Andrew's been talking a lot about this lately, <laughs> so let, let's tune in. This is the last podcast I'm coming to. <laughs> I have some thoughts, but somebody else can go ahead. Jeremy, what were you sharing yesterday? <laughs> huh. What was I sharing yesterday? It was a CS I think I was smoke? telling people the difference between porcupines and hedgehogs yesterday. <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> Everything to do with um, as well yeah. as copper and bronze. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, what was the Hebrew word for copper and bronze? I can't say oh, that no. on, on the air. Nacho sheet. Nacho sheet. Something like that. Well... As someone who has a tendency, although I don't say a lot on this podcast, who has a tendency to say a lot when they're teaching and preaching, I would highly recommend making sure if you have a text that seems to have two big points, make sure you don't have two homiletical units, two uh, thought passages or um, individual thoughts pressed into one text. See if you cannot maybe break it down further uh, for the sake of your own sanity and studying and for the sake of uh, your uh, classes or congregations understanding as kind of a newbie preacher myself um you know that is kind of a struggle because it could be that you are either either you've got two big ideas that you're trying to tie together in a way that's just not going to work like he said or you've got several ideas that actually are tied together by one main idea and i think it's just kind of part of the process figuring out what to do from there. Yeah, I think uh, I think Jeremy brings up a good point. So there are um, some well-known preachers that would probably make a case for uh, being able to preach 
a sermon that has more than one main idea. Uh, so I don't think that that could be totally written off. However, for the sake of your sanity and sermon prep for sure, and for the sake of, you know, if you're a small group leader putting together a, some kind of class or something like that, um, it would be helpful to make sure that the, that the reason you have more than one main idea isn't because you've bitten off more than you should be chewing at one time. Um, uh, because that, that would not be helpful. Or because you gave up too soon. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. Don't yes. be mistaken in us trying to describe this process that it's easy. Like, yeah. oh, you know, no, right. pull it's this not. lever, press this button, boom, you got a sermon. Yeah. It just doesn't, it's some, there are, there are many times where, um, and this isn't to sound like I'm doing anything special, but more to show that I, I'm weak. Uh, there's been plenty of times where days and days I'm laboring to try to understand the meaning of a particular verse or, or the, the overall meaning of a passage because it's just not coming to me. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a hard process, but it's one that is uh, worth doing. And I think we have the responsibility to do mm-hmm. if we're going to be standing and handling God's word uh, before others. Even Peter said that there are some things in the scripture that are hard to understand. And I think it's just part of the labor of love of figuring out, you know, what is this text saying? And, and we need to not count it um, a loss if we have to struggle with that. So when it comes to an idea, maybe I wasn't listening and I missed this. Cannot uh, a text be either broken into smaller pieces or you, can't you go for a larger chunk of text? I mean, the whole Bible is preachable. You could preach the whole Bible and say, mm-hmm. man sinned, God promised a redeemer. The redeemer came, rose again, and is going to take us into glory. So how would you, so then what What we're talking about is uh, like Martin Lloyd Jones, didn't he go through Ephesians and how many years did it take him? And he supposedly preached one sermon on the two words, but God in Ephesians two. So how do we, how do we think about that? Yeah. Well, I think also that, um, like we were talking about earlier, if you're reading through the entire, say you're going through, um, a book of the Bible. And as a pastor, part of your sermon prep is to be very aware of the flow of the thought of the author throughout that entire book, right? So the the main idea might not be that different from one Sunday to the next, right? Because what we'll find is that the author doesn't typically write in choppy points, right? He's got a main flow that he's working through. Uh, but also, Within those, within that main idea, maybe he'll shift from one main idea to the next as he works through his letter. But what you'll find is within that main idea, he's got a lot of sub points, right? So what we would say is you take the homiletical passage, you figure out what the main idea is, and then you got the main, the sub points that support that. However, if you're going to take the time, like what you're talking about with Martin Lloyd Jones, um, you have to be very cautious, I think, to do that. But if you're going to do that, if, if you're well seasoned in your, in your preaching abilities, uh, and you think that that's within your giftedness to be able to do that, uh, one of those subpoints could become a main point, right? As long as you keep it within the context of the entire scope of the book, right? And then when then in the entire scope right. of the Bible, but you could take a subpoint and say, okay, this is within this within this homiletical unit, which has this main idea of whatever it is. These are some subpoints, but I can preach these as main points under that flow of thought. And you could do that. It's just you have to be really careful because you have to make sure you always tie it back to the main thought of the author. Just understanding the broader context. Absolutely. I have not heard the Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon, but I'm actually assuming it was not on those two words. 
I bet that was just a useful device to connect the rest of the text. So I bet he actually did preach on the other text because I don't, I mean, but God comes in a context. And if he's going to preach faithfully, he has to show us what the context that but, but that was the God size of the text that he chose to preach from. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And it, it was probably a top. It could have been a topic. <clears throat> and, and let us not forget, we're speaking about Martin Lloyd-Jones, yeah. who uh, <laughs> I come up to about his ankles, yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, to another example would be John Piper, right? I mean, how long it took him to go through Romans. I mean, he went a couple of verses at a time through Romans, but he's always tying it back, mm-hmm. right? So he's doing it in context. So, mm-hmm. so, So maybe another way to say it is that we're trying to, we started this by talking about finding a homiletical unit, choosing a text. That unit has <laughs> subpoints that lead to that unit's main point. But that unit itself is a subpoint of yeah, a larger right. main point. Right. Mm-hmm. And that larger right. main point is a subpoint of an even larger one. And you right. can keep expanding right. until you get to what is the Bible about? Yep. About Jesus. Yep. Amen. But that's that's <laughs> yeah. that's the way to yeah. I think systematically think about how do I seek to understand the Bible and in its whole and in its parts. Understanding that God has not written us a jumbled mess of ideas, but he has a clear uh, story if you will that he is telling and all of the parts are fitting in toward his ultimate eternal purpose which he has fulfilled in Christ and is fulfilling still. Yep. Yeah, so it seems like we're looking at the the micro level of uh, of choosing a text and so on and so forth, and and kind of just uh, zooming out and out and out. Um, just uh, to close, uh, Ferris, you have a couple times while you've here, you've preached on entire chapters uh, in mm-hmm. full. You a couple weeks ago, you did John seven, you did Genesis five, and I know you've also preached in other chapters uh, of John. So, what was your experience when you were preparing? Uh, chapter 7 of John, did you see that there was a couple, maybe two big ideas that you came across? Or did you did you see everything fitting under one main big uh, proposition? Under In John 7, one thing I would say about John is not every book of the Bible uh, does mm. it seem that people chose the chapter divisions correctly, mm. but I would say John is one book where it seems that the chapter divisions are fairly natural. Um, my experience in, in John 7 is um, you have a whole lot of people who have some reason for not believing in Jesus, and then they bring that reason forward. And one of the things he says during his teaching is that if, you, if your will is to do the Father's will, then you will know whether my teaching is mine or whether it comes from God. And really... Those qualifications seem to, if you put those over the different people in the passage, it seemed to, to show what was, what was in their hearts that kept them from believing. And it, and it really came down to they sought their own glory and to do their own will. And, and that's really what kept them from believing. So it really helped me to show that in order for us to believe, God needs to change that within us. We need to approach desiring to do God's will, and only he can do that. And and then we will know. Then we will be assured. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I think it's been just a really helpful podcast that we covered today, just the first three stages of biblical uh, preaching. Uh, stage one being choose the passage to be preached. Stage two, study your passage and gather your notes. Stage three, as you study the passage, 
relate the parts to one another to determine the exegetical idea and its development. And we also, like I said before, have the 10 stages in the notes of this podcast if you, if you guys want to check that out. So thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next week. Yeah. So it's just funny to have this video. Yeah. <laughs> really yeah. Everyone wants to talk. Everyone has something to say. Everybody has opinions. Everyone's strong. Yeah. So, All right.